Kilmeny of the Orchard Chapter 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kilmeny of the Orchard by Lucy Maud Montgomery Eric Marshall, read by Levi Throckmorton Kilmeny Gordon, read by Wooly B. Thomas Gordon, read by Natalie Paula Janet Gordon, read by Kimberly Krause Mrs. Williamson, read by Christine G. Robert Williamson, read by Vanessa Cooley Mr. Marshall, read by Truman Thames Dr. David Baker, read by T. Lane Neil Gordon, read by K. Hand Mrs. Rebecca Reed, read by Lydia Old Master Gordon, read by James Callahan The Professor, read by Marianne Bodor Larry West, read by Beth Thomas Alexander Tracy, read by Marianne Bodorf Joan Reed, read by Kimberly Cross A Farmer, read by David Olson Narrated by Shakira Searle Chapter 1 The Thoughts of Youth The sunshine of a day in early spring, honey pale and honey sweet, was showering over the red brick buildings of Queensley College and the grounds about them throwing through the bare budding maples and elms delicate evasive etchings of golden brown on the paths and coaxing into life the daffodils that were peering greenly and purkily up under the windows of the coed's dressing-room a young april wind as fresh and sweet as if it had been blowing over the fields of memory instead of through dingy streets was purring in the tree-tops and whipping the loose tendrils of the ivy network which covered the front of the main building it was a wind that sang of many things, but what it sang to each listener was only what was in that listener's heart. To the college students who had just been capped and diplomaed by old Charlie, the grave president of Queensley, in the presence of an admiring throng of parents and sisters, sweethearts and friends, it sang, perchance, of glad hope and shining success and high achievement. It sang of the dreams of youth that may never be quite fulfilled, but are well worth the dreaming for all that. God help the man who has never known such dreams, who, as he leaves his alma mater, is not already rich in aerial castles, the proprietor of many a spacious estate in Spain. He has missed his birthright. The crowd streamed out of the entrance hall and scattered over the campus, fraying off into the many streets beyond. Eric Marshall and David Baker walked away together. The former had graduated in arts that day at the head of his class, the latter had come to see the graduation, nearly bursting with pride in Eric's success. Between these two was an old and tried and enduring friendship, although David was ten years older than Eric, as the mere tale of years goes, and a hundred years older in knowledge of the struggles and difficulties of life, which age a man far more quickly and effectually than the passing of time. Physically, the two men bore no resemblance to one another although they were second cousins. Eric Marshall, tall, broad-shouldered, sinewy, walking with a free, easy stride which was somehow suggestive of reserve strength and power, was one of those men regarding whom less favoured mortals are tempted seriously to wonder why all the gifts of fortune should be charred on one individual. He was not only clever and good to look upon, but he possessed that indefinable charm of personality which is quite independent of physical beauty or mental ability. 
He had steady, greyish-blue eyes, dark chestnut hair with a glint of gold in its waves where the sunlight struck it, and a chin that gave the world assurance of a chin. He was a rich man's son, with a clean young manhood behind him, and splendid prospects before him. He was considered a practical sort of fellow, utterly guiltless of romantic dreams and visions of any sort. "'I am afraid Eric Marshall will never do one quixotic thing,' said a Queenslee professor, who had a habit of uttering rather mysterious epigrams. "'But if he ever does, it will supply the one thing lacking in him.' David Baker was a short, stocky fellow with an ugly, irregular, charming face. His eyes were brown and keen and secretive. His mouth had a comical twist, which became sarcastic, or teasing, or winning, as he willed. His voice was generally as soft and musical as a woman's. But some few who had seen David Baker righteously angry, and heard the tones which then issued from his lips, were in no hurry to have the experience repeated. He was a doctor, a specialist in troubles of the throat and voice, and he was beginning to have a national reputation. He was on the staff of the Queensley Medical College, and it was whispered that before long he would be called to fill an important vacancy at McGill. He had won his way to success through difficulties and drawbacks which would have daunted most men. In the year Eric was born, David Baker was an errand boy in the big department store of Marshall and Company. Thirteen years later, he graduated with high honours from Queensley Medical College. Mr. Marshall had given him all the help which David's sturdy pride could be induced to accept, and now he insisted on sending the young man abroad for a postgraduate course in London and Germany. David Baker had eventually repaid every cent Mr. Marshall had expended on him, but he never ceased to cherish a passionate gratitude to the kind and generous man, and he loved that man's son with a love surpassing that of brothers. He had followed Eric's college course with keen watchful interest. It was his wish that Eric should take up the study of law or medicine now that he was through arts, and he was greatly disappointed that Eric should have finally made up his mind to go into business with his father. It's a clean waste of your talents, he grumbled as they walked home from the college. You'd win fame and distinction in law. That glib tongue of yours was meant for a lawyer, and it's a sheer flying in the face of providence to devote it to commercial uses, a flat crossing of the purposes of destiny. Where's your ambition, man? In the right place, answered Eric, with his ready laugh. It is not your kind, perhaps, but there is room and need for all kinds in this lusty young country of ours. Yes, I am going into the business. In the first place, it has been father's cherished desire ever since I was born, and it would hurt him pretty badly if I backed out now. He wished me to take an arts course because he believed that every man should have as liberal an education as he can afford to get. But now that I have had it, he wants me in the firm. He wouldn't oppose you if he thought you really wanted to go in for something else. Not he. But I don't really want to. That's the point, David Mann. You hate a business life so much yourself that you can't get it into your blessed noddle that another man might like it. There are many lawyers in the world, too many perhaps, but there are never too many good, honest men of business, ready to do clean, big things for the betterment of humanity and the upbuilding of their country, to plan great enterprises and carry them through with brain and courage, to manage and control, to aim high and strike one's aim. There. 
I'm waxing eloquent, so I'd better stop. But ambition, man? Why, I'm full of it. It's bubbling in every pore of me. I mean to make the department store of Marshall and Company famous from ocean to ocean. Father started in life as a poor boy from a Nova Scotian farm. He has built up a business that has a provincial reputation. I mean to carry it on. In five years it shall have a maritime reputation, in ten a Canadian. I want to make the firm of Marshall and Company stand for something big in the commercial interests of Canada. Isn't that as honorable an ambition as trying to make black seem white in a court of law, or discovering some new disease with a harrowing name to torment poor creatures who might otherwise die peacefully in blissful ignorance of what ailed them? When you begin to make poorer jokes, it's time to stop arguing with you said david with a shrug of his fat shoulders go your own gait and dree your own weird i'd as soon expect success in trying to storm the citadel single-handed as in trying to turn you from any course about which you had once made up your mind phew this street takes it out of a fellow what could have possessed our ancestors to run a town up the side of a hill I'm not so slim and active as I was on my graduation day ten years ago. By the way, what a lot of co-eds were in your class. Twenty? If I counted right. When I graduated, there were only two ladies in our class, and they were the pioneers of their sex at Queenslea. They were well past their first youth, very grim and angular and serious and they could never have been on speaking terms with a mere in their best days. But mark you, they were excellent females, oh, very excellent. Times have changed with a vengeance, judging from the lineup of coeds today. There was one girl there that can't be a day over eighteen, and she was looking as if she were made out of gold and rose leaves and dewdrops. <laughs> the oracle speaks in poetry laughed eric that was florence percival who led the class in mathematics as i'm a living man by many she is considered the beauty of her class i can't say that such is my opinion i don't greatly care for that blonde babyish style of loveliness i prefer agnes campion did you notice her the tall dark girl with the ropes of hair and a sort of crimson velvety bloom on her face who took honours in philosophy i did notice her said david emphatically darting a keen side glance at his friend i noticed her most particularly and critically for someone whispered her name behind me and coupled it with the exceedingly interesting information that miss campion was supposed to be the future mrs eric marshall whereupon i stared at her with all my eyes there is no truth in that report said eric in a tone of annoyance Agnes and I are the best of friends, and nothing more. I like and admire her more than any woman I know. But if the future Mrs. Eric Marshall exists in the flesh, I haven't met her yet. I haven't even started out to look for her, and don't intend to for some years to come. I have something else to think of, he concluded, in a tone of contempt, for which any one might have known he would be punished some time, if Cupid were not deaf as well as blind. We'll meet the lady of the future some day, said David dryly, and in spite of your scorn, I venture to predict that if fate doesn't bring her before long, you'll very soon start out to look for her. A word of advice, O oh, son of your mother, when you go courting, 
take your common sense with you. Do you think I shall be likely to leave it behind? asked Eric amusedly. Well, I mistrust you, said David, sagely wagging his head. The lowland Scotch part of you is all right, but there's a Celtic streak in you from that little Highland grandmother of yours, and when a man has that, there's never any knowing where it will break out, or what dance it will lead him, especially when it comes to this love-making business. You are just as likely as not to lose your head over some little fool or shrew for the sake of her outward favor and make yourself miserable for life. When you pick you a wife, please remember that I shall reserve the right to pass a candid opinion on her. Pass all the opinions you like, but it is my opinion and mine only which will matter in the long run, retorted Eric. Confound you. Yes, you stubborn offshoot of a stubborn breed, growled David, looking at him affectionately. I know that, and that is why I'll never feel at ease about you until I see you married to the right sort of girl. She's not hard to find. Nine out of ten girls in this country of ours are fit for king's palaces, but the tenth always has to be reckoned with. You are as bad as clever Alice in the fairy tale who worried over the future of her unborn children, protested Eric. Clever Alice has been very unjustly laughed at, said David gravely. We doctors know that. Perhaps she overdid the worrying business a little, but she was perfectly right in principle. If people worried a little more about their unborn children, at least to the extent of providing a proper heritage physically, mentally, and morally for them, and then stopped worrying about them after they are born, this world would be a very much pleasanter place to live in, and the human race would make more progress in a generation than it has done in recorded history. Oh, if you are going to mount your dearly beloved hobby of heredity, I am not going to argue with you, David Mann. But as for the matter of urging me to hasten and marry me a wife, why don't you— It was on Eric's lips to say, why don't you get married to a girl of the right sort yourself, and set me a good example? But he checked himself. He knew that there was an old sorrow in David Baker's life, which was not to be unduly jarred by the jests even of privileged friendship. He changed his question to— Why don't you leave this on the knees of the gods where it properly belongs? I thought you were a firm believer in predestination, David. Well, so I am, to a certain extent, said David cautiously. I believe, as an excellent old aunt of mine used to say, that what is to be will be, and what isn't to be happens sometimes. And it is precisely such unchancy happenings that make the scheme of things go wrong. I dare say you think me an old fogey, Eric, but I know something more of the world than you do, and I believe, with Tennyson's Arthur, that there's no more subtle master under heaven than is the maiden passion for a maid. I want to see you safely anchored to the love of some good woman as soon as may be, that's all. I'm rather sorry Miss Campion isn't your lady of the future. I liked her looks, that I did. She is good and strong and true, and has the eyes of a woman who could love in a way that would be worth while. Moreover, she's well-born, well-bred, and well-educated. 
three very indispensable things when it comes to choosing a woman to fill your mother's place friend of mine i agree with you said eric carelessly i could not marry any woman who did not fulfil those conditions but as i have said i am not in love with agnes campion and it wouldn't be of any use if i were she is as good as engaged to larry west you remember west that thin leggy fellow you chummed with so much your first two years of queen's leah yes what has become of him we had to drop out after his second year for financial reasons he is working his own way through college you know for the past two years he has been teaching school in some out-of-the-way place over in prince edward island he isn't any too well poor fellow never was very strong and has studied remorselessly i haven't heard from him since february he said then that he was afraid he wasn't going to be able to stick it out till the end of the school year i hope larry won't break down he is a fine fellow and worthy even of agnes campion well here we are coming in david not this afternoon haven't got time i must mosey up to the north end to see a man who has got a lovely throat nobody can find out what is the matter he has puzzled all the doctors he has puzzled me but i'll find out what is wrong with him if he'll only live long enough End of chapter one